It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Christopher Blythe's new book focuses on Latter-day Saint views of the end of the world, which might seem like it's a little bit on the nose right now, but here we are. Blythe goes back to the beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to find out how early church members thought about the apocalypse, the cataclysmic end of the world, which would usher in a new peaceful era under the reign of Jesus Christ. The more tension Latter-day Saints felt with the United States, where the church began, the more intense their ideas about how it would all turn out became. But Blythe says violent visions of end times destruction began to fade as the church became more mainstream in American culture. Questions and comments about this and other episodes of the Maxwell Institute podcast can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. I'm sitting here right now with Christopher Blythe, and I want to set the scene a little bit for listeners, because this is the first interview that we've ever done in the new Maxwell Institute building. So, Chris, you are the very first one to uh, to join me here. Exciting times. Yeah. So, we're sitting in the new Maxwell Institute library. I won't typically be doing interviews in here, but it's empty in here. The books are not on the shelves. I can't wait until the place is finished. We've got art up on the walls throughout the hallways. Offices are getting put together. It's an exciting time at the Maxwell Institute. Uh, and, and Chris, how have you spent your summer? How's it been with COVID going on? I have uh, done a lot of childcare. So I'm there. Mm-hmm. That did some uh, some interviews, some blog writing, and a lot of childcare. And you had a book come out. Ironically, and maybe perfectly enough, a book about. Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse, at a time when it perhaps seems more apocalyptic than ever, perhaps, in, at least in our lifetimes. Absolutely. Have you thought much about that? Have people kind of joked with you about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, did I plan this and so on? And it definitely uh, really uh, fits with the things going on at this moment. So it's a book about Latter-day Saint views of the end of the world, in effect. It focuses on how ideas about the apocalypse took shape within uh, what's historically been called Mormonism. So let's start with that term apocalyptic and apocalypse and unpack what that term means at a basic level, because I don't think Latter-day Saints often use that term. I don't hear much about the apocalypse or anything. I hear about the second coming, for example. So let's talk about the term that you chose. Sure. I think we talk about the last days or the millennium and so on. I chose the word apocalypse for a few reasons. Um, the, the the major book about apocalyptic before mine came out was one by Grant Underwood. And the term that he prefers is millenarian. Uh, millenarian is a sort of a theological term. It differentiates what Latter-day Saints believe um, about the second coming of those events. I really wanted to stick with the destructions that um, Latter-day Saints expect to occur in the last days. And so on a popular level, apocalyptic refers to destructions, a sort of mass change in the the world. zombie apocalypse? Yeah, sure. Zombie apocalypse is a great example. You go to bed one morning and the world is completely changed when you wake up the next day. Um, Apocalyptic is also a literary tradition. The Book of Revelation is one of our most popular, you know, examples of apocalyptic texts. And so I wanted people when they read it to also think about that literary tradition. So I'm going to try to bring readers into actual textual examples of how the apocalypse plays out in Latter-day Saint thought. The word itself is sort of about an uncovering, is that right? Like no, the absolutely. Apocalypse yeah. is for something to be uncovered, something it's to revealing. be revealing. Yeah. yeah. And what's revealed is catastrophe. Catastrophe and a better world, right? You're going to go yeah. through this catastrophe and then everything's better if you can just get through this however many years. 
different religious traditions within Christianity have different views of how the apocalypse will look. They have different terms for what they call it. They have different ideas about the timeline of it. And Latter-day Saints have unique views within that spectrum of belief. So your first chapter in the book introduces readers to the overall master narrative, is what you call it, about the apocalypse for Latter-day Saints. And you talk about how these ideas developed over time. So your book actually begins back in the bedroom of Joseph Smith in an evening when an angel visited him in September 1823. And I think a lot of books about Latter-day Saint history might begin in the in the grove where Joseph prayed and mm. saw a vision of God and Jesus Christ or something like that, or the, the pioneers crossing the plains. You chose Moroni coming to the bedroom in the night here with, with an announcement. Why begin the book there? Oh, that's a great question. And I wrestled with it. I, I wondered, should I start with the introduction of the church itself or the Book of Mormon? But I think this moment with Moroni uh, really gets to the heart of Joseph Smith's understanding of his own personal mission. You know, I think it's well known at this point that Joseph rarely shared his experience of the first vision. Um, it's not until 1838 that it seems like he's woven his experience of the first vision into the history of the church. Um, however, this story about Moroni, um, the experience of meeting an angel who's going to lead him to the Book of Mormon plates, has been a standard of his testimony and of his personal history ever since. And as I hope I show in the book, this moment is completely apocalyptic. Here is, you know, as we see in other apocalyptic texts, an angel appears and guides a visionary through the events that are expected to occur. Um, there's even a text involved, right? I think Absolutely. you talk about how in, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a, an angel that brings a, a book, I think, to Isaiah. Yes. Does he have that? And then Isaiah and John the Revelator and Ezekiel, several visionaries, and including an extra canonical text, um, are receiving a book from an angel that's going to guide them this way. I just imagine that scene of Joseph, this teenage boy lying in his room, and then an angel appears, and what does he do? He doesn't have a normal conversation with Joseph, at least so far as we can read the text. He, he really recites scripture. And so Joseph is sitting there and listening to this angelic being read to him uh, kind of scary things that are going to happen in the last days and some positive ones about Malachi, visions. Malachi, right? And, yeah, Malachi, the idea that, that young men will see visions and old men will have dreams or vice versa. Um, ideas about the kingdom being built, but also about the moon turning to blood and the stars falling from the sky and scary and, things. And something needing to happen or, or else the earth will be smitten with a curse. Oh, absolutely. That's Malachi, that Elijah, the priesthood needs to come um, before this moment. So Joseph is, uh, this is his real beginning of his prophethood. He has this message that he already, by the time he's writing this account up, has already begun to think of it in terms of the book of Revelation. Angels speaking about the last days. Um, that shows up in that text. Latter-day Saints often remember Revelation 14 about this other angel. And Joseph's already kind of placing those things together, that he's hearing that last day's message from that apocalyptic messenger. Right, and Joseph would have had some ideas about how this all works, being somewhat familiar with the Bible even as, as a young man. So as Latter-day Saints developed ideas about the end times, and as Joseph Smith developed ideas, he wasn't operating in a vacuum. This was a hot topic in the 19th Absolutely. century. So you say that America had a a long history of apocalypticists dating back to its European discovery. What's a snapshot of how that developed and how 
Americans over time thought about end times leading up to Joseph Smith. Often we talk about how end times were often perceived very optimistically in early America, that the second coming was going to happen. And it really wasn't about a hard period that was going to happen first. The hard period was actually the Reformation. Many Protestant Americans thought Catholicism, this dark ages were that tough period that was going to happen. That was like the great beast or whatever. Yeah. The Pope and all of this. Yeah. Right. So they had a very historical trajectory of how these events would happen. But the major events that I think so interesting is here Europeans come to, to the Americas and immediately they think it's the fulfillment of prophecy. You know, others are having questions about how native peoples relate to last day's ideas, particularly believing that they're Jewish peoples that need to obtain the gospel, learn the gospel, Um, all sorts of ideas um, about this new place and how it relates to biblical events. As I I think about the story of the Latter-day Saint tradition, I think it immediately picks up with those same questions. What is special about this new land, um, and how does it relate to how we expect the history of the world to go when we read the Bible. Yeah, let's dig into some of those main themes that Mormonism picked up on um, from this broader view of of the end of the world. First, you mentioned that it's something that's closely tied to the Hebrew Bible, and this is the people of Israel. So this is the end times will relate to people in real places. Talk about that geography for a moment. We've been so focused in Christian history, of course, on the biblical events occurring in the old world, and initially in the Near East and Jerusalem um, and surrounding environments. Certainly, prophets and others speak about the land of Jerusalem as the fulfillment of these places, where they expect the Battle of Armageddon to be thought, fought, where a sort of messianic figure or Christians, Jesus, will appear. And also, they'll speak of things like the North Countries, which Christians will pick up on and relate to modern-day Europe. Um, But when we get to the New World, the Americas, people want to wonder how these events are actually going to be positioned right there. So Joseph Smith immediately is going to want to find the city of the New Jerusalem. This is one of the Book of Mormon's central messages, that in the United States— well, in the Americas, the city of the New Jerusalem will be built. And this is the place where a temple is going to be constructed, where individuals who have lost their identities, whether they're Europeans or native peoples here, will unite together and build a temple. And there they will have a sort of Armageddon experience in the new world while preparing by building a utopia for Jesus to appear in the flesh once again. And that leads to the next theme, which is this idea of fleeing Babylon. What was that about? Absolutely. Fleeing Babylon is the central missionary point of the 19th century. Missionaries would go out and they would warn people that God had prepared a place of safety, but events were going to happen that made their current places um, unsafe. Um, That might be because the righteous will be persecuted. It might be because God's judgment will be poured out on the earth. Um, But the key is the gathering, that people need to flee where they're currently at. And so when we think about Latter-day Saint history, I often think about, uh, you know, this beautiful idea of pioneers and, you know, the sort of ruggedness of the West, conquering the West. But there's another lens that people are experiencing that gathering, which was... uh, Um, necessity. They were fulfilling prophecy. There's going to be a great place to happen, but they're in a hurry for a reason. 
the rest of the world is not safe. Did you see people being kind of gleeful about that? Like, hooray, flee Babylon, because people are going to, they'll really get theirs. Or was it more like, oh, we got to get out of here. This is really scary. Yeah, that's the question about schadenfreude, right? Are people taking joy in the idea that their enemies will be punished, persecutors? I think there is some of that. Um, You know, section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants is a dedicatory prayer from Joseph Smith for the Kirtland Temple. And in it, Joseph actually says, you know, God, we don't rejoice in the destruction of our enemies. However, we understand this has to happen because it's thy will. And so I think Joseph is always trying to encourage the saints not to have that attitude. Um, but that also tells us that attitude that attitude was actually there, right? He spoke to it. Yeah, absolutely. But for the most part, I think people wanted to bring their families to Zion. And so you didn't just flee to Zion, you prepared to go back on a mission. You raised your kids up and you sent them back on missions. And the goal was to bring all the righteous. There's also an idea that you'd construct this sort of perfect society out in the West. And this was a society of complete pacifism. So a great scripture, I think it's section 45, discusses how in Zion there'll be peace, right? So if you don't desire to draw the sword, you'll have to flee to Zion. Um, So it's not that the saints are great warriors or something. The idea is that anyone, whether they're believers or not, should come to wherever the saints are, and there they can have safety. Um, so a lot of the apocalyptic things I discuss in this book talks about that, you know, once these destructions happen, Zion will just be full of refugees. I think it's an important idea. And another theme is the actual return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, which you say is central to the Latter-day Saint master narrative. How did Latter-day Saint views differ from other Christians when it came to Jesus returning? You know, some people think that the second coming is not essential to Latter-day Saint views of the last days because it doesn't come up, this sort of mass appearing, the Perugia, where the clouds are rolled up and Jesus is there and everyone can see him. But Latter-day Saints actually had a variety of initial appearances that were more important to them. Jesus was expected to appear um, at the building of the New Jerusalem. Jesus was expected to appear at the Battle of Armageddon, at the conversion of the Jews. And Jesus was also expected to appear at this very important council, the Council of Adam and Diamond, in which Adam was to appear with Jesus and sort of set up a last day's government. Did it take on a political hue at all for Latter-day Saints? Were there political views intertwined with their views of the apocalypse? Oh, I think absolutely they were. Uh, Modern-day saints don't have a stark contrast from where their spiritual beliefs begin and end and where their political sort of efforts are being placed. And so they hoped to, particularly when they're not functioning as just members of American citizens, they're hoping to build a society that can function independent, where you know all those ideals of justice and so on can be established. So as this master narrative is taking shape, you say that regular members of the church were participating in their own ways in what you call the church's apocalyptic project. What kind of things were regular church members doing to participate in that project? Well, I think partly it's the lens that Latter-day Saints had. You'd go out on missions, you'd gather. All of that's done in a certain imagination. But part of this project was that you would also have visions, you'd also have dreams, you'd also preach sermons and prophesy about local destructions that might occur. And people literally had, you know, they discussed Isaiah, they discussed Revelation, and they didn't discuss it just for a faraway land, they discussed it for right 
wherever they happen to be. Did they expect it to be pretty soon then? I mean, the name of the church is Latter-day Saints, so... Absolutely. I think in the early Latter-day Saint tradition, um, the second coming, these last days events were very imminent, so much so that I see church leadership often playing a role instead of sort of, I mean, often saying these events are near, but an equally important role of saying they're not that near. So expect it in two generations. Don't expect it tomorrow. Didn't someone say like, plant your tree, plant some fruit trees or something like that? Yeah, eventually this is going to be a really important rhetoric. We see Joseph Smith is going to say it can't happen until 1890. So, you know, 60 years but early on, they do you think a lot of church members in the early couple decades were thinking it was... Oh, I think they're always thinking that. Right on I the horizon. I think they're always, and church leaders are pointing backwards. Joseph Smith is expecting things to happen in the 1830s, and all along, like this is... I don't think Latter-day Saints, I think they think they're living in the apocalypse, right? This is a thing that's occurring all around them. They're looking Um, for the signs of the times. Yeah, the signs of the times is everywhere. I think about that moment that Joseph Smith wakes up in 1833 with the Leonid uh, meteor shower, where just this incredible experience in early America where stars appear to them to be falling from the sky, but really it's this amazing meteor shower. And Joseph saying, here it is, like this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And I think about that as part of this this group project in that Joseph saw that, but also there were visionaries that predicted this thing to happen, right? It wasn't just Joseph's experience with it. So, Did he have to regulate very much? I mean, if there were regular members of the church having their own visions and dreams, what kind of regulation happened within the church in terms of, you know, who gets to say what revelation is right? Like my neighbor could say, yeah, I had this vision that it's going to be next week. And like, <laughs> how, would you, how might someone like Joseph Smith handle that kind of a thing? Yeah, so... You know, one of the most memorable and important moments of regulation in early church history is with Hiram Page in 1830. Hiram Page is a seer. He has a seer stone. There are other Latter-day Saints with seer stone. Joseph Smith does not have a problem with the idea that someone might be a seer and not be him. Um, However, he's receiving revelations on where the church should gather and build Zion. And this is the problem. So Joseph Smith comes out and says his revelations, well, he seeks revelation, and Joseph's revelations say that Hiram Page's revelations are fraudulent, right? They're from an evil source. And that's when he creates a theology of who can speak for God in an official capacity for the church. Um, some scholars like Richard Bushman would say, before this moment, Joseph Smith was a prophet in the early tradition, and he became the prophet, because he would stress that only the prophet could receive revelation for the whole church, um, and particularly for church agenda. Where should Zion be built is a great example. And so you see that pointing out. Other moments, Joseph is really, you know, he just discourages the sharing of prophecy at times. Latter-day Saints expected Native American uprisings as an important part of last day's events. Um, But Joseph Smith also knew that when missionaries preached about Native American violence towards Euro-Americans, the result was that people didn't much care for Mormons. There was a fear of, of American Indian uprising. And stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. The Latter-day was, Saints were seen to encourage that. Yes, absolutely. And that's the case. So Joseph responds and says, stop doing it. It's true. We certainly believe in it, but stop talking about it. That sort of regulation is the most common for Joseph. Meanwhile, he, he'll think privately individuals can have all sorts of beliefs about the last days. And he'll just say big comments like, 
it's not going to happen until this point. And he'll he'll uh, preach, re-preach that several times. But the idea that there would be uh, sort of initial destructions or great miraculous events, um, if one predicted any of this as a member of the early church, um, Joseph Smith would have been fine with it, most likely. And he was on many occasions. And he was aware of other prophetic claims around the United States where there were visionaries who claimed that they knew when the end would be. I think William Miller, I think, yeah. was one of these. And he kind of criticized those. But I don't, as you point out, even Joseph couldn't fully escape wanting to get some kind of timeline. So he did have a revelation that pointed to a particular date, but it was ambiguous. Talk about the ambiguity. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, 1844, William Miller's expecting something between 1843 and 1844. And Joseph, really, I mean, when we think about early American apocalypticism, the Millerites become almost a mainstream movement hundreds of thousands of these believers um, who come to think there's going to be an apocalyptic timeline that uh, destructions will happen and then Jesus will appear, then paradise on earth, which was a different timeline than most Americans had, but it became popular at that time. So some early Latter-day Saints, such as uh, Joseph Fielding, would say he first learned about second coming events from the Millerites, and then he found the gospel, but he saw these as connected. Um, So Joseph would frequently address the Millerites, as would other early leaders. And that's what leads him to get this revelation about when could the second coming be? Is it possible 1844 is the date? I think ambiguity is really important. So Joseph has this revelation, and initially he's telling people that maybe 1890 is the winding up scene. Say, Joseph, if thou livest until you're 85 or something like that. Yeah. That you'll see the face of the Son of Man. Right. Which is like... And so what does he, that mean exactly? So early 1835, he's pronouncing that. Like, uh, what's he say? 45 years. Is that the right math? 55 years will be the, will be the winding up scene. Yeah, like when he's, he's taking it would have been revelation. his 85th yeah. year of life. Or, right. The calculation so 1890, 1891. And then by the time he gets to 1843, when he writes this other revelation, he says, well, this is the experience I really had. And the experience said, yeah, I'm going to see God in 18, by the time I'm 85. But what does that really mean? Like, am I going to be dead? Is it going to be some sort of preliminary second coming? Um, so there's that ambiguity. And so when 1890 rolls around, the church has to ask that question, what's really at stake here? And of course, most church leaders take that second perspective of Joseph that we don't really know. Right. And then obviously he died young. He, he died at, uh, in, in 1844. We're talking today with Christopher Blythe. He's a research scholar here at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. We're talking about the book Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse. So Joseph is killed. He's assassinated by a mob here. And in your second chapter, you cover martyrdom and apocalypse. And you write, in death, Joseph Smith entered the cosmology that he'd outlined during his life. How did that look? There's a couple points. Both of them leads me really to ideas that Sam Brown has introduced in his wonderful book on heaven as it is on earth. He makes two points about Joseph. One, that Joseph is the final martyr in Latter-day Saint ideas. In the book of Revelation, there's this scene where John sees the martyrs who are under the altar in the throne room of God. And these martyrs are praying and lighting incense, and they're in mourning. They're saying, when are you going to avenge us, our deaths, right? And they're told 
that they need to be patient, that they need to wait until all the martyrs have come, and then God can act. And so early Latter-day Saints read that, and they really believed that martyrdom was part of their last day's mission, that they would have to die for their faith, and that would prepare for these events to occur. And what Sam Brown notes is that Joseph is that last prophet. People expect with his death, these events will kick off. And where he kind of ends with that idea, I try to begin with it and and say, what what did they really see how that looked? Because we're, we're, what, 200 years later now, and we're still here, so. Right, and that's the question, right? If we were going to incorporate that in a modern LDS thought, what would that look like? Um, And I think we do in a sense. The other side is that Joseph, in Sam's language, is a secondary savior. And so he plays a role in early ideas of Latter-day Saint cosmology where he's um, greeting the dead when they appear. He's certainly um, leading. Um, you can, there's these great quotes that I draw on Terrible Revolution about Joseph Smith leading the destructions. So Joseph becomes this really active agent there. At the same time, Joseph is trying to help the faithful. And so when you die, the person you expect to see is Joseph Smith, who will guide you over to the other side and give you your mission and introduce you to everybody. I think think you'd be hard-pressed to meet a Latter-day Saint today who believes that, but this is something that was talked about back then, that they kind of expected him to play this millennial role. Absolutely. Uh, Even with the resurrection, I think. Yes, and that's the very fascinating idea where Joseph doesn't take over Jesus' role, but Jesus commissions Joseph to sort of resurrect people in a sort of ordinance. Do you think this is members trying to make sense of Joseph's death? I mean, so many people didn't expect it. I think it was a shock, and it, and it did it did shake a lot of people, and they needed to make sense of that. Do you, do you see them trying to do that using these apocalyptic narratives, or do you think it's something else? No, I think that's absolutely right. Joseph has been killed, and he's in the middle of doing so many things. He's maybe going to lead the saints to a new location. He's started the Council of 50, this political movement within the church, and he's running for president of the United States. He's building a temple. I mean, uh, this is a shock. People are not expecting this to happen. In retrospect, I think people look back and they see statements from Joseph Smith, and these aren't hard-to-find statements where Joseph actually says, you know, I don't feel safe. Like, um, you're not going to have me here long. Um, and they begin to think about what those comments mean um, and relate it on to sort of, uh, it seems to them from the perspective of July 1844 that uh, Joseph knew all along that this events were going to happen. We also see some violent imagery here. A lot of apocalyptic texts include violence. John's yeah. revelation does. Some of Joseph Smith's revelations do. When it comes to the death of Joseph and Hiram Smith, you talk about in the book how some of that violent imagery gets incorporated to how people dealt with the, the martyrdoms here. Yeah, I think uh, vengeance becomes really important after the death of Joseph and Hiram. Um, and I actually argue that the apocalyptic rhetoric was meant to appease some of that drive for vengeance after Joseph and Hiram's murder. And so while we might be able to point out specific quotes where people uh, sort of fantasized about taking vengeance on these uh, persecutors. For the most part, church leaders would say, you have to hold off and don't worry. God's going to take care of it. Um, it's Brigham not that Latter-day Saints weren't positioned to do anything, right? I mean, there was the Nauvoo Legion. They Absolutely. they had a strong tradition of gun ownership and, and martial sort of experience. Some of them were direct relatives of people who fought in the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. So when Joseph is killed, you might expect Nauvoo to 
try to take action here. And they're training in the Nauvoo Legion. I mean, these guys are real militiamen. Um, you know, I, I think it's such a fascinating thing that in Carthage, Joseph and Hiram are murdered, and the next morning, all of the people in Carthage have fled. It's a ghost town because um, they're so worried that the Nauvoo Legion is going to come in um, and they're going to have to fight a battle. And they know they can't win that battle. I mean, this is just the sort of uh, the sort of population in Nauvoo as either the first or second largest city in Illinois. Um, and this portion of the trained militia of, Na- of Illinois, the Nauvoo Legion, there's is the largest segment of the state militia. So it's not a small thing. They uh, even to kill Joseph Smith. I mean, you have to separate him from his people to do this. So I think people expected reprisals, and as I try to show in the book, I mean, they 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 expected this violence from Latter Day Saints to avenge Joseph Smith for decades. Right? This is keeping keeps coming up in American folklore. Like the trial goes wrong. Right? They they try some people, and no one's. No one's punished at all for the extrajudicial killing of Joseph Smith. And once again, you'd think that that would be a time for Latter-day Saints to take arms or to try to get some of their own vigilante justice, and they don't. What they do instead is bring in this apocalyptic imagery. And listeners might be familiar with something I first encountered on my mission, which is a book called Fate of the Persecutors of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. This is a very apocalyptic book. Yes. Oh, this is... This is a key to early Latter-day Saint folklore. The expectation is what's going to happen to these men that escaped justice. Brigham Young gives a talk that I think is so important that he says, you don't want to kill these men because it's it's worse for them to stay alive. They have to deal with this sort of uh, guilt, this just absolute fear of what's going to happen when they die and have to see Joseph Smith. Both Orson Hyde and Brigham Young talk about this moment that Joseph Smith's bloody ghost or in Brigham's terms that he's going to find someone else to be the bloody ghost, but a bloody ghost will appear before these persecutors on their deathbeds to face this. Other people talked about the Mormon curse and certainly Latter-day Saints cursed these individuals through prayer and ceremonially their persecutors. They wanted God to avenge them. Um, they talked about the Mormon curse, this idea that people would be uh, really, it's a specific physical curse that an individual happened where they would rot while being alive yeah. like oh i i was going through nauvoo on the way to my mission and i saw this old man on the side of the road and and i asked him his name and he said no don't talk to me mormon and his <laughs> arm rotted off and yes stuff like this that. is scary stuff like, i was in the mob that shot joseph smith these are there's a worm in their eye about. while yeah. they're still alive very I mean, they're, violent they're yeah. walking zombies it's it's very scary material. And I, I try to relate that, you know, we talk about the idea that Latter-day Saints have of Cain, this individual often portrayed as still alive, just wishing he could die, but can't. Um, scared to death about the judgment. He's also Bigfoot, by the way. He's also he's also Bigfoot, just wanting to die. And that's the same thing. They portray these people that have this uh, emotional and emotional anguish and physical torment and this diseased. And then also they can never settle down. They just wander through their lives. So yeah, you'll see them on the side of the road and you'll see them on the trek west. These people often, they've gone out to the west maybe to seek gold. And they're, unlike Latter-day Saints who have found this great home and learned how to work the land, uh, they're beggars and they're 
usually living on the outskirts of Latter-day Saint communities, and Latter-day Saints bring them food, not realizing who they are, just a little bit, and they don't, they're not trying to be vindictive, but they're accident, they're keeping these guys alive to suffer further, right? So... One of the most unsettling parts of the of the book, I think. Definitely, I agree. Yeah. But you know, like I said, I'd been introduced a little bit to that to, by seeing that book. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, really important. First, we had the Martyrs by Lyman Littlefield, which was published and very popular in the early 1900s, and then you have in the 1950s this fate of the persecutors of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Yeah. And, they and collected all the lore about all these. Yes, because Joseph had shot someone in the jail, and I think that. This guy's Townsend, who yeah. we don't hear about any time otherwise, no. but shows up in one of them. And yeah. then he's one of these people. That, and they're drawing on some of this biblical imagery of sort of, you talk in the book about this idea of the Feast of the Birds or something. I don't, remind me what it is. Yeah, this grand it's called feast the, the Feast of the Living God is often what it's said, but it's it's this moment in Revelation and also um, in Ezekiel where after the Battle of Armageddon, you imagine... Uh, the battlefield is just full of dead bodies. Well, how do you envision the earth's going to be cleansed? So the angels, you hear this voice, the trumpet, and you say, uh, beasts and animals come to the feast of the living God, and they go out and eat the the remains of this battle. So then, then the earth's purified, right? Um, also very unsettling. Yeah, it's, and, and, and you don't hear about it on, on Sunday, you know? Like it's, right. It's, it's unusual to read about some of these things that don't really play a part much in, I think, average Latter-day Saint religious Something experience. has changed about our religion. Something has happened in the past hundred years. Yeah. And we'll get to that as well. We're talking with Christopher Blythe today about his book, Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints in the American Apocalypse. You say in chapter three, Chris, that uh, for Latter-day Saints, the apocalypse was as much about place as it was about time. So take a minute to talk about, you've mentioned a little bit already about location, but how geography came to play a part in Latter-day Saint apocalypticism. You know, I think geography is always this important thing for Latter-day Saints. Um, from the Book of Mormon, it, it it's one of its major purposes is, that, is to take a scene that we expect to play out in the old world with Jewish people. Now we're bringing it forward to the new world with Native peoples here playing a significant role and occurring right in this scene um, in the Americas. But when I think about the, the importance of place, sometimes over time in Latter-day Saint thought, I think of an insight of Grant Underwood that I still think is just a, just a genius understanding. He compares Latter-day Saints to evangelicals. Evangelicals are expecting the rapture. This is how God can judge the earth while preserving his faithful. This is the idea that like people will get taken up into the sky, yeah. and then all these destructions will happen to all the evil people left behind. Yeah, and then they can come back, and it's heaven on earth. Millennial rain on the earth. Um, Latter-day Saints have something similar, Grant Underwood says, but it's about place. So he, God is going to pull people from Babylon. Babylon is where those events are going to happen, which is Babylon is everywhere. Zion's not, right? It's the world. And he's going to create this place, Zion, where the faithful can be preserved and protected. And that's why it's all about place. Um, it's not so much, is it going to happen tomorrow? It's you need to get to this great place. And, and it kind of moves. So Jackson County was supposed to be sort of that center place, but then the church itself is displaced from there. But even when they were out in the Utah Territory, they still were thinking about that being the locus, that perhaps even yes. a return there was part of Latter-day Saint apocalypticism. Yes, I think that's key. So initially, we're having to 
place changes every time Latter-day Saints migrate um, and how it's going to relate to to the apocalypse. So Jackson County is the city of Zion. We move to Nauvoo, Illinois, and Jackson County in a sense has been, it's less discussed, but people still talk about the possibility of going back there or eventually as the fulfillment of prophecy. But it's when Joseph dies and the saints scatter. You know, the vast majority of the saints end up in Iowa and then off to Utah. Um, but there's also other factions that end up in different locations. And in all of these lo- factions, people are pointing out the importance of going back to Jackson County. So some people actually won't travel across the Rocky Mountains because they believe they have to get back to Jackson County, and that would be a waste, right? It must be within our lifetime. Why would we go out there? Um it's pretty fascinating. At one point, Brigham Young even says that he expects we'll be back there. He says it in 1853. He says he thinks he's, we're going to be there within seven years. So, I mean, there's certainly that urge to get back there. So what are these other spots, these temporary gathering places? They're still places that God will protect individuals for the short term, right? And you see prophecy morphs. So when we're in Utah, it's really focused on the Rocky Mountains. When we start moving south into Arizona, and then we have colleagues in Mexico, for these groups of people, people begin to talk about the importance of Mexico and the fulfillment of prophecy. When people migrate north to Canada, all of a sudden you see lore of other legends putting Canada into that conversation. And part of this, too, is a revelation Joseph Smith recorded in 1832 that speaks of one mighty and strong, this idea of a strong prophetic figure. And how did this come into play with Latter-day Saint views of the end times? Yeah. Um, gradually, the idea of a messianic figure, both this one mighty and strong, and another figure, Joseph talks about, a man like Moses, who will lead people back to Jackson County, um, be- become what people are waiting for. They're waiting for some sort of messianic figure, whether that might be Brigham Young or someone else, that will take charge of the church and you know vanquish our enemies, in a sense, and lead the saints back to Missouri. This is a major theme in Last Day's Prophecy. One of my favorite sources, um, I just mentioned it in terms of the seven-year prophecy about returning to Jackson County, but W.W. Phelps, a fascinating early Latter-day Saint, uh, begins to preach that Brigham Young is this man, that he's going to play this important role. And Phelps was an associate of Joseph Smith, right? And oh, absolutely. He, he wrote Come Come Ye Saints. and he Absolutely. Was Come Come Ye figure. Saints helped with the Book of Abraham. Was he an apostle at the time? No, he's not an apostle. He's more like a eccentric intellectual that the apostles are always drawing on. Um, but he says Brigham. Now, yeah, he thinks Brigham Brigham's guy. Think about that. Brigham gets. Uh, he asks him, "What gives you the right to say this?" And Phelps says, "Well, of course, you're the leader now. So wouldn't you be the guy?" And Brigham says, "Well, why can't I die and the next guy do it?" Or um, so he's just so undecided. On. Like I don't know. Brigham is really all about being, he says a few times that he's the great man that the scriptures mention nothing about. Like he does not want people speculating on his identity. And he's worried um, that if people knew, and this is when he says, I, th- I personally think this isn't church doctrine. This isn't something I want to preach with the pulpit. I think we're going to be back in Jackson County in seven years. We're not even going to be able to finish this temple. We're going to finish that temple first. But... The important thing is that we keep that private because if we start speculating about this stuff, the saints don't want to worry about building a temple here. They want to get back to Jackson County. They want to do all sorts of other things, but we need them to build a society. 
So really fascinating to see that come about. But we become kind of haunted by the idea of a messianic figure in and our this tradition. Would lead to some splinter groups too later on. Absolutely. Latter Day Saint fundamentalism would sort of point to that verse to justify almost splinter all movements. schisms. So even when Joseph Smith III and the RLDS Church um, people begin to talk about the one call him the one mighty and strong, and he'll come out and say, "I'm not that guy." Um, they wonder if he is a figure called Baini Me um, that shows up in another prophecy, a sort of last day's general figure. Um, all sorts of different figures get associated with each of these different leaders. And yeah, it's messianism. And so eventually the church is going to think we need to crack down on this sort of messianic speculation. And with all that going on, the church also had a really antagonistic relationship with the United States. As you recount in chapter four, Latter-day Saint views of the apocalypse sort of mapped onto the civil war in particular ways. How did they generally see the civil war in terms of the end times? Did they think that was it? Yeah, this is, you know, 1832, Joseph Smith had this prophecy of division in the United States. And he comes back to it, um, the same experience in the 1840s, just to discuss it, you know, something he expects. But the saints throughout that period, even though we have that 1832 document, the saints have decided not to publish it. Um, It doesn't appear in the Doctrine and Covenants, even as late as 1844, the last publication. But then when the 1850s, once we get established in Utah, 1852, the same year that polygamy is announced, right at this time, we announce this prophecy of the Civil War, and our missionaries begin to focus on it as a major message. Um, it does two things, right? This definitely talks about the collapse of the American government, um, and it also gives that last warning, like, no, you really, the gathering is for a purpose. You need to get across the Rocky Mountains for a reason, because things aren't safe here. And the Civil War ends, the world doesn't end, That's so right. Latter-day Saints kind of have to account for that a little bit. And you see during this period in the Utah Territory the rise of a new kind of Mormon apocalyptic thought in some new first-person accounts of visions, mostly from regular members of the church. What's an example of that? There's, there's so many interesting ones. In the 1850s still, there's one by a man named Stephen Martinsdale Farnsworth, who talks about a vision he had in the 1840s in which he sees both the sort of what we call the Mormon Reformation, this tough period where the saints are trying to purify themselves and church leadership is being really strict. Um, And also he sees the coming of American soldiers to Utah. This becomes very important. It's still one of the most uh, popular and well-circulated, what I call, you know, folk visions or vernacular apocalypse. It's even preached over the pulpit once, but like any of these, you can find dozens of circulated copies that are just slightly different from each other. You know, other great examples are sometimes attributed to church leaders. So there's an 1877 one often attributed to John Taylor, but initially was anonymous and just credited to, quote, a 70 um, so very unlikely to be any church leader. And a 70 back then was even different than, he was sort of like a high priest quorum type. Yeah, he's a, he's an elder that's been a missionary and, and hasn't been most likely called to be a stake president or a church leader like that. If I remember correctly, they talk about like, oh, these cities are going to have these calamities and Salt Lake City is going to have one. like blood coming down the streets yes. and stuff like this. 1877 is where he, the visionary, is brought to a variety of different cities. In Salt Lake, he kind of sees a quarantine city. There's a disease that's happened. The righteous have <laughs> it been It was really creepy to read it right now. Like, yeah. The oh, empty absolutely. streets and stuff, because I just have been experiencing that. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> right. Isn't that fascinating? So, yeah, I've seen a few people post that online to say it's happening now, 1877 visions. So they fulfilled. have pointed to that one. Yes. Wow. Oh, and this is, this is everywhere. This 1877 vision is everywhere um, and is still quoted today, credited to Wilford Woodruff, who thought it was interesting, so he recorded it in his journal. Even so though, he recorded it, right? Yes, who, he puts it in his journal. According to the best info you have, who do you think wrote it? You just think it was some anonymous 70? I, I do think it's an anonymous 70. There are some people who think it's a an astrologer. I don't. I think we just don't know who it is. Um, and I think this this astrologer just has a great copy. Uh, his name's Steele, Jonathan Steele, I think. I think more likely it's just an anonymous figure. And because people began to credit it to different church leaders, it just spread everywhere. Um, ultimately, this one would initially gain popularity as Joseph F. Smith's vision. Joseph F. Smith would have to preach against it in the 1880s. And then again in 1918, uh, his last general conference would come come out and say, I didn't write this thing. Um, <laughs> then it would be credited to Wilford Woodruff, and right now is most often credited to John Taylor. Pretty fascinating. The How other church ones, leaders react to, to these? I mean, when they get credited to them, there's an issue, right? But for the most part, um, if people are prophesying an attack by uh, the Americans, uh, the American military on Utah, I mean, we see this in 1857, they're expecting it. Most of these prophecies are uh, completely mainstream. They're published in church newspapers, sometimes preached over general conference pulpits. It really is a group project. People aren't nervous about an individual who would prophesy, an individual who would talk about their dreams or visions, so long as it doesn't set them up as a celebrity, so long as it doesn't specifically tell the church what the church should do, um, and so long as it doesn't predict anything too out of the ordinary. And you can make those distinctions as people will find if they read your book, because you also talk about some splinter movements and some other groups that did those things in their prophecies, and as a result, sort of separated from the church. So people can check that out in the book, Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints, and the American Apocalypse. Your next chapter talks about how there's some pretty big changes for the church that happened. So at the turn of the century, the church is going from a relationship of deep mistrust with the United States to becoming more of an acceptable part. The Utah is granted statehood. Latter-day Saints are moving more into the mainstream of American culture. And in, in looking at that history, what happened to Mormon apocalypticism? Because previously it was sort of this antagonistic relationship that the church had with America and the apocalyptic stories played out in that sphere. So the church became more acceptable within America. What happens to those stories of apocalypse? This is so fascinating. For right in that period, those prophecies begin to be read as America as the hero. When previously America was the enemy and the church was the, the hero preserving things, gradually we begin to think about the United States again as that central figure. You know, uh, scholars are sometimes called the Redeemer Nation. We imagine that sort of Redeemer Nation, and we're part of it. And of course, we still imagine we have a very essential role in it. So, um, you know, there's always been a vein of political messianism where Latter day Saints are going to preserve the Constitution. Sometimes, perhaps, they'll serve as politicians. You know, Joseph was running for presidency. And so the Constitution will hang by a thread. Yeah. And so once the manifesto sign and statehood happens, um, George Buchanan, for example, immediately says, ah, this is how prophecy will be fulfilled. I wondered how we could preserve the Constitution out here. Well, now we can preserve it within the nation. And by being part of it. By being part of it. Okay. You know, we see James Talmadge um, 
in World War I saying uh, America can't be beat because America is Zion in these prophecies. Um, just really interesting. That's a big change. It's a huge change. And part of that is because initially, Latter-day Saints' understanding of apocalypticism is really steeped in pacifism. We're not going to fight the battles directly, um, except defensively. Um, we're certainly not going to fight foreign wars. And then as we have statehood and people begin to put America in these special scenes, we have an internal kind of fight among church leaders. And, and you, see, you can see it happening in sermons and public discourse of how prophecy will happen and how Latter-day Saints will participate in events. Is it right for us to fight in World War I? Is it right for us to fight in the Spanish-American War and so on? Until we get into the deeper portion of World War I and World War II, where it's then assumed that we've all kind of reoriented ourselves with that prophecy. Now, gradually, I think we're out of that. This was a moment in time where the sort of political entity of, of the United States fulfilled prophecy. And I think today we might actually be kind of closer to that 19th century image of a, of a Zion being built that's less based in the nation state. Right. As perhaps skepticism about political parties or governments, a rise of libertarianism perhaps, and these yeah. type of things would feed into back into these more apocalyptic dualist views where Zion is not co-equal with the United States government yes. and so on and so forth. So you see a rise of that. Right. Um, happening, and you talk about that in the book. There's also at this time some people in the church who start to get really cynical and actually start accusing the church leaders of what they call unconditional surrender of, of Mormonism, basically. They, they see the church changing its narrative about end times, and they accuse the church of selling out or, or whatever. What's happening yeah. there? I think that's These right. People are like churchlier than thou people, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I think Americanization was a, a really... You know, it's changing our identity. People had rooted themselves in an idea that the United States were our persecutors, that we were a sort of city on the hill. Um, and that change um, or that reorientation, that reimagination of how these prophecies should happen was really disorienting for people. So um, we see the rise of sort of fundamentalist movements that preserve these older ideas of prophecy. And polygamy and, and things polygamy, the absolutely. Um, we also see that there's just a lot of these prophecies and rhetoric that go underground, that people just preserve them in their households and amongst their friends and don't really know what to make with what's happening publicly in the church's face. Is the church taking action to tamp it down as well at this time? Because previously, Absolutely. as you said, there's pretty laissez-faire. They would let people have their visions and talk about them as long as it didn't directly challenge the church. Does that change? Absolutely. You know, I think when we talk about this moment of transition, we often just talk about things like the manifesto and statehood as if church leaders could do something and then the people like automatons just switch. And that's not how it worked, of course. Um, so there's a serious of public statements um, warning individuals about uh, don't trust that neighborhood visionary. You know, meanwhile, 20 years ago, it would have been no issue, but don't trust that neighborhood visionary, um, not only because we've had some scam artists in the church sort of thing, but remember that God gives revelation to the individual, and you should look to church leaders, and you should, if you have a special experience, you should share it with your family, or you should keep it to yourself, write it in your journal. And they also picked apart certain major prophecies, um, particularly one called the White Horse Prophecy. That, you know, nowadays it's very common to say the White Horse Prophecy was not a historical event, um, meaning it wasn't the prophecy it claimed to be. In 1843, 
prophecy and vision from Joseph Smith, um, which talks about this constitution hanging by the thread, but also talks really about race wars in, in the United States, where there would be uh, slave uprisings, Native American uh, sort of invasions on locales, uh, where the United States, the Gentiles, will attack the white horse in this vision, which is the saints. And the saints, the white horse, and the red horse, the Native Americans, will work together to preserve the Constitution and build this new Jerusalem. It really, it it didn't happen in one event in 1843, and that might be important, but it's really a composite of all of the visionary stuff that's being discussed in this period. So the white horse prophecy, you could say, oh, that's nonsense, but every one of those ideas appears elsewhere, all put together in one place. So when the church begins to speak out about it, particularly this sort of American context, don't trust this this idea. It, it It's a message to the ordinary Latter-day Saint to reorient their minds, to say, hey, America isn't the bad guy anymore, so so get it together. And of course, the White House prophecy was still popular into the 1950s and has a, has a small presence nowadays in various places. The question that pops up is that the White Horse Prophecy as we have it was sort of cobbled together in a later recollection, decades after the death of Joseph yes. Smith. So are you saying that in the original records, people can go back and see Joseph Smith saying similar things? Or Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the expectation, I mean, if you took the Civil War Prophecy, Section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and you pulled out the expectation of slaves rising against their masters and the remnant, uh, you know, I, speaks about uh, what uh, Jared Hickman uh, refers to as um, Amer American apocalyptic ideas. All of those are present in Section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants, as they are in the Book of Mormon, and now they're retold. Um, as well as this conversation between the Gentiles and the, the believing Gentiles in the Book of Mormon, all that's retold in this white horse prophecy. And so when church leaders speak out against that, they're really speaking out against an entire mindset of apocalyptic that was so popular previous to Utah State. And it's interesting that none of that really ended up canonized. I mean, we have the prophecy about the Civil War, that then war would eventually be poured out upon all nations as a result of that. But these other elements that get put together into what people today see as the white horse prophecy didn't end up canonized didn't end up part of yeah. the mainstream churches sort of narrative i think they become uh definitely more vague and they're I, I think they're folk elements this sort of political messianism that's certainly not in the doctrine and covenants in the same way the extent of how america will collapse isn't spelled out in the same way so yeah that is true so in your last chapter you say that Apocalypticism in the early church was sort of separatist, come out of the world, you know, flee to Babylon. You say that it's gradually been replaced over time by a moderate millennialism, and you detected a shift where church members went from almost happily anticipating the end of the world to maybe even fearing it and dreading it a little bit more. Moderate millennialism was an argument from Underwood, where Grant Underwood argued that Latter-day Saint understanding of the apocalypse were actually really moderate. They, uh, they weren't uh, radical ideas, particularly when you compared them to the Millerites and others. And, and I think they absolutely were. Throughout the 1800s, um, Latter-day Saint separatist ideas were certainly radical. I mean, they were revolutionary. They fueled our conflict with the government. Um, but once this changes, the church wants to moderate these ideas and modify them. And so some of the ideas are stop thinking the second coming is so imminent. 
Um, but the biggest change, is is what you point out there, is that we've become to, to fear them. It, fear of the second coming in these events doesn't make sense from a 19th century Latter-day Saint perspective because you come to the West. You're protected here. Everything is going to be okay. And then Jesus comes back. And then and Jesus comes back. This is all good stuff. You can worry about other people. You go out and do missions and get them back. You know, it could motivate you. But the idea that you would be afraid doesn't make sense. Now, it changes because we no longer have a notion of the gathering. Latter-day Saints are all over the world. And uh, when previously you were leaving that infrastructure of, you know, quote, Babylon— now people are part of it, um, and so I think it's there's some little uh, there's a little cognitive dissonance in how to read these apocalyptic visions in the modern world, which means Latter Day Saint leaders, um, particularly in the past twenty years, have focused really hard on trying to encourage people not to be afraid of the second coming. Now, certainly through the Cold War, there were moments where the second coming rises up as a sort of uh, potentially scary event, you know. Um, but for the most part, you see people making this shift. There's even uh, professors at BYU's campus who, uh, who have publicly repented of having previously taught the apocalypse in a sort of scary light and now have that same message. Like, don't be afraid. This is all about good things. Um, but of course, how did you read that for that period before that happened? Was a, it was an actually tough thing for Latter-day Saints to do, I think. And that happened over the course of decades. We're looking through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now we're 20 years past the year 2000. And you say that there's kind of a spectrum of last day's zeal among church members today. How would you characterize that? Absolutely. I think the average Latter-day Saint has—I um, I shouldn't say average Latter-day Saint. I don't have access to that. What I think is that the public— discourse in the church is that we live in the last dispensation and that we can expect these wonderful and trying experiences to occur within a, a general time period of, you know, the next several generations. Um, we've seen uh, Boyd K. Packer famously says, you know, your grandchildren will have the opportunity to grow up and have grandchildren or, or so on. Um, there'll be time. So we have this sort of moderate idea that just understands you're in the last days, and the last days means we need to get on with the work, right? Preach the gospel, uh, build Zion where you are, and so on. Temples. Temples, yeah. This is a, be a good Latter-day Saint and a good citizen wherever you are in the world. Very different from what people are thinking in the 19th century. You have a sort of radical idea, which is preserved in fundamentalism, where the American government is still evil, and where one should withdraw from society. So where we're sitting right now in Provo, there's probably within you know an hour either way, there's several communes where people have started united orders, um, small groups for sure, but that have preserved that sort of prophecy. Not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but members of other Latter-day Saint factions or Latter-day Saint denominations. And then there's where I see most of the interesting uh, material happening among Latter-day Saints, which is we've learned to keep certain ideas about apocalyptic, you know, specifics um, to ourselves. So people still, Latter-day Saints still have visions, still have dreams um, about last day's events, or still say they do, and that uh, there are 
different settings where these are discussed. And so they might occur, they might be shared in family gatherings. They might be shared at a, you know, I heard these things, um, missionary companions talking in the middle of the night or on a long drive. You hear sort of vestiges of these ideas, um, apocalyptic speculation. Although the, these missionaries would know they would never share that with an investigator or talk about it over the pulpit, they could sort of I heard this, and this person here heard this, and my grandfather had this vision here. Um, some of these ideas are preserved that way. And then we've also found digital communities. And this is where we can see individuals, so long as they don't develop a sort of celebrity or uh, become anti-church in their perspective, as long as the church is being a bad guy, um, they're usually tolerated in modern Latter-day Saint life. And so you can see major commu digital communities such as LDS Avow, which has 10,000 members, where people discuss some of these ideas about the apocalypse in a more radical way than we would see from general authorities. And then we see some some of the, I think, most fringe, I think of like the Daybell case, where were they— Absolutely. I mean, I believe, for people that haven't followed this, it's Chad Daybell— wrote books and wrote some things about the last days, kind of built up a following— um, his wife mysteriously died. He ended up marrying one of his followers, like within weeks of that or something, right? Yeah. And then her children disappeared, and now they're both under arrest. They're both uh, accused of the murder there, and they found the the remains of the children, yeah. right? And they and he had like an end, end times prophecy too, didn't he? Yeah, you know, since you know, I talked about the problem in early Latter-day Saint tradition. There's sort of an idea that you're not supposed to build up a celebrity. Um, as a visionary, right? The idea that one might have a vision or might have a dream and that they would share it with others early on, even widely, wasn't problematic. But as people built celebrity, there usually became a, you know, a point where they either gave up their vision, they stopped talking about it, or um, fracture occurred. Um, other movements were started and so on. The Daybells, or Chad Daybell, is one of an example of a line of sort of called celebrity visionaries since about 1990 um, near-death experiences were well known before this point for a couple decades people talked about near-death experiences but we hadn't had book-length narratives about them until one from betty Eady called embraced by the light not everybody knows this but betty Eady was a latter-day saint yeah she didn't present herself as such in the right book, yeah. she did initially when her book was published in utah um where she talks about seeing the spirit world she has all sorts of latter-day saint implications in her book um and then she gets a better book deal to tell her near-death experience and she removes those latter-day saint parts then, so you don't talk about work for the dead or anything anymore, right? Then that's published nationally. And so people, the first great success was a Latter-day Saint near-death experience visionary. Well, that book-length near-death experience narrative gets picked up by others. And so we begin to see, um, and really, you know, every three years, you can point to a major one where a Latter-day Saint visionary has told a large book-length experience of a near-death experience, which usually integrates a lot of these ideas about the last days. And so Betty Eady, we then have a woman named Gail Smith in the 1990s who became very popular over the radio in uh, Utah area. Um, we then have uh, Sarah Manet, um, several others. John Pontius. John Pontius, who writes the narrative of Spencer, 
sold hundreds of thousands of his narrative, um, including in some major church bookstores. Um, and then after Spencer becomes important, Spencer does something interesting. Spencer's anonymous, which is people begin to trust him more because he's not a celebrity. It doesn't seem like he's trying to attract. he was real or did John make him up? I've met Spencer. Oh, okay. Um, so he's real. He really is anonymous. Uh, he's his in bishop, just, yeah, he's in the That's church. His bishop, John Pontius was was he not excommunicated? I don't know John's story. Spencer's different. Spencer's not excommunicated. He's fully active, and he's he's a uh, you know you wouldn't think anything unusual about him in church um, because he really hasn't collected that sort of celebrity. Then Julie Rowe shows up, and Julie Rowe is I try to contrast her in the book. Um, some people think Julie Rowe has not been successful in the same way as Spencer because she's a woman. And that might play into it, but I really think it's this difference about appearances. One at least appears to not want a celebrity, and Julie Rowe um, shows up and she writes four books, now more. Has like a YouTube Yeah, she starts a YouTube channel. channel. She appears on all sorts of radio shows doing interviews. Um, and this doesn't sit well with Latter-day Saints who expect... Um, that sort of public outreach to be done by general authorities. Yeah. Um, but so she becomes very popular for a time. Church authority and lay members sort of yeah. sort of directing the narrative of end times. It's an ongoing dynamic. And so Julie eventually runs into that problem. And while initially the church just, you know, in 2015, there are reminders like this is just her personal thing. Uh, seminary teachers, please don't quote this in class. Stop handing out photocopies of her vision. You know, that sort of thing. Julie loses the clout she has with many members um, after she predicts an event, an imminent earthquake in Salt Lake City that doesn't happen. Um, She's just a little late then, I guess. We yeah, been, uh, it eventually <laughs> happened. Um, there will always eventually be an earthquake. Right, so. that's right. And she says this is not the one she was waiting for, though. Oh, okay. So she didn't take that opportunity. But uh, Julie lost a lot of clout there. And that's when Chad Daybell made his announcement that he was a visionary. You know, before, I was never really interested in Chad Daybell because I, I kind of left out the the fictional accounts of the last days. And he had I written some fiction. Yeah, he's kind of a left-behind author, a Timothy LaHaye yeah. for some Latter-day Saints who are interested in that narrative. This and is all while you're working on your apocalyptic yeah, book. He announces it right when I'm you know, finishing my final draft. And so I think it's kind of interesting that he claims to be a visionary. And I've thought about that interaction between fictional accounts and apocalyptic narrative, because you see actually some of the famous apocalyptic visions that Latter-day Saints still circulate, such as Angel on the Prairies, one written by Parley P. Pratt, is actually a fictional account, right? It's not meant to be um, a true vision. However, it tells a true expectation of a last day scenario, right? Um, so Chad Daybell shows up at this time, and because Julie's on the way out, he's able to show up and be the end guy. And so um, builds up clout. His public voice is just like everyone else. Um, the basic last day scenario for them is that God is going to call out, the, the term that's used is the call out. Um, he's eventually going to tell the prophet, the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to tell the faithful to leave their homes, grab tents and food storage, and head up into the canyons. Um, and there they can be protected. That's Chad's major message. It's not very different than anyone else's. You have lots of little... All of these individuals will point to different sort of geopolitical events and things, but that message is pretty basic. And then Chad privately begins to teach other ideas. Um, 
which he never published his sizes. And some of these are about, uh, you know, an emphasis on demonology and possession. Eventually, you know, what he's thinking about zombies. Yeah, that seems really uh, unusual. Like, I'm not seeing him drawing on Latter-day Saint stuff to kind of put some yeah. of that stuff together. So I think it's important, you know, he has that Latter-day Saint basis in his ideas. Um, but the idea that someone could become possessed and then be stuck that way, like your identity is completely gone. Someone else has been sort of a body snatcher for you. Um, Isn't in a Latter-day Saint idea at all. Um, But apparently is an idea that led to the death of two children and perhaps others. Um, Really scary. I was very disappointed in the Latter-day Saint prepper community because the first reaction was to sort of close ranks and assume his innocence. I mean, I get that because they embraced him as a sort of, I mean, a sort of important voice. Um, And it wasn't until the children's bodies were found that that community quickly changed and said we were wrong. So you'd say that most of those people kind of Um, see the writing on the wall. Oh, absolutely. Once this happened, everyone um, shifted gears. But before that happened, um, it was all a great big conspiracy theory. Right, they were being persecuted, and the the kids were somewhere safe, just like they claimed. And um, I think it's really embarrassing to that com- community and really painful. I I don't think, um, you know, I'm interested in this Latter Day Saint prepper community where these prophecies are still important, where individuals also believe they're mainstream Latter Day Saints. I think it's interesting um, because it's uh, it's so different from the experience of Latter-day Saint culture that we see in public or at church. It's a minority expression of the faith, but I don't think these are individuals that are, you know, unsafe or maybe eccentric, but I don't think they're mentally unbalanced or something like that. I think for the most part, they're trying to prepare for bad things they expect to come. Um, And uh, they're often um, more conspiratorially conspiratorially minded, and that might lead to some of these uh, susceptibility to people taking advantage of them, such as Chad Daybell. It kind of relates to the last question I have, which is, what use is this history to contemporary church members or to people who are trying to think about views of the end times? What does history do for us when we're thinking about the apocalypse? Yeah, I think there are um, a lot of different takeaways I hope people have for this. You know, I think uh, one of the things we need to remember is that there is a core of Latter-day Saint experience, particularly with, you know, what some people might call the supernatural, which I hope my book shows is still enduring. So where someone might say, look, the Latter-day Saint, Latter-day Saint culture really just changed completely in 1900. Well, that's not true. It's learned how to navigate the modern world by keeping some things private at a folk level. Um, When it comes to last day's prophecy, I hope people focus on the optimistic of it. There's a message that early Latter-day Saints have that uh, they're trying to build a better world through through community, through uh, preparation, sure, um, but also for other people, right? They're building this better world, not just for Latter-day Saints, but for for the whole world. They want to be a sort of saviors on Mount Zion. They want to be a a people that has their act together so they can embrace others, whether in their faith or not, that need them. And I think that's a beautiful image of the last days that they have there. Mm. Um, I think there's some caution in there that we see 
all around, I mean, these reminders all the way through the book um, to be moderate in our beliefs, to understand that uh, sometimes we've localized or interpreted our beliefs in a very specific context. And as we look for fulfillments of prophecy, um, I'm speaking to a very a Latter-day Saint audience here um, as I say this, but the takeaway for that, as we expect to see these fulfillments of prophecies, we don't really have all the facts. So we need to have a very open, broad mind on how things can be fulfilled, even as we have a testimony of the importance of preparing the world for Christ's second coming. That's Christopher Blythe. We're talking about his book, Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints in the American Apocalypse from Oxford University Press. Chris, thanks for talking to us today here on the Maxwell Institute podcast. Uh, So much fun. Thanks, Blair. You know, we received some really great reviews over the past few weeks of the show. Here's one from someone that goes by Mom and Dad Have iPhones. It says, The show opened my eyes to see how people from so many different disciplines can apply their knowledge to deepen their understanding of gospel principles. Uh, another one here from Brady 88 It says, I was recently introduced to this podcast by a friend, and I love it. See, your recommendations make a difference, people. Tell your friends about the show. All right, finally, Working Harding says that they found this show after they finished listening to the Saints podcast. They say, I love that I have years of past episodes to listen to and learn from. The host gives us a Cliff Notes version of the book with author's commentary. He does a great job of staying out of the way, but also helping us learn. All right, well, I mean, that's the goal, uh, to stay out of the way and help you learn. So to the rest of you, get in there and send us a review. I also heard from two new completists this month. These are people who've listened to the entire back catalog of the podcast. So congratulations and welcome to the Completist Club, Charity Molner and Megan Armnecht. Okay. If other listeners would like to have a chance to have me probably mispronounce their name on the show, then they just need to email me, mipodcast at byu.edu, to let me know that they have listened to the entire run of episodes and we'll get a little reward or something sent your way soon. We're still figuring out what that is. All right. That's everything. We'll see you next time on the Maxwell Institute podcast.